Welcome to the Restoration Church Podcast. To learn more about our church, give, share a prayer request, or access our weekly worship guide, visit us at www.restorationlex.com slash this week. I want to begin today just by saying that we have a conviction around here that, um, that church should not be uh, an escape from our reality. It should be the place where we come and actually process and see that reality more clearly, that we shouldn't just ignore things like we've seen this week that are weighing heavy on our hearts. I know that we're thinking about this. We watch the news day in and day out. And so uh, we sing these songs. We pray these prayers of lament. Lament is, at least in the tradition I grew up in, we, we did not do that. It was all happy, uh, all happy all the day sort of stuff. And, but a third of the psalms are lament. A third of the psalms are crying out to God, asking questions, saying, I, I don't know, God, are you even here? Like, like, why are you doing this? And so that just, it should tell us something that God gives that much space in the scriptures to weeping, to questions, to hurt, and, and I'm comforted by that. And so that's why we... We come on a day like this, on a week like this, and we actually step into it instead of stepping away from it. So back in March, um, my family got to go to uh, Disney World for the first time. And uh, I'm a person with a weak stomach. Um, So I'm always looking for the rides um, that usually the toddlers and the grandmas um, can ride because I can't do the roller coasters. Uh, the rest of my family can. And so we were uh, walking around and I found this one ride that had basically no line. And that should have told me everything I needed to know, but it didn't. It was something called, I and mean, if you've ever been there, you might have known this. It's called Walt Disney's Carousel of Progress. You can see uh, the pictures here on the screen. That's the outside. What this is, if you've never been before, uh, and if you have never been before, you're not missing anything. Uh, This ride, it it rotates through five different scenes of this very animatronic, very, very Caucasian family. um, And they show these improvements that happen in their life over time from like the late 1800s all the way up into the 1980s and it's weird because they don't actually age um, and it creeps me out just looking at that picture right now Um, and all the while like they transition between the 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 phases with this song that goes like it's a great big beautiful tomorrow Um, and it was in every single possible way so just artificial just You can recognize the world in front of you. Yeah, you can recognize these pieces of technology and remember these things that happened back then. But at the same time, it was glaringly obvious how far from reality this actually was. I mean, we could not wait. Everyone on this ride could not wait to get off. And as I got off, it felt like even in that moment in, in the strange Disney World world, I, I was thinking about this, how it represented something I had felt kind of for a long time, and that's this 
sort of sense of the, the Western Enlightenment myth of, of progress, that, that through our ingenuity and through our innovation, that we will eventually, scientifically and morally and politically, we will arrive at a better world together. This was clearly the message of this ride. It's clearly the belief of Walt Disney, and it felt so fake, and it especially feels fake in a week like this. That myth of progress, that myth of our own ability to reach some sort of utopia feels so empty. There's mass shootings in schools and grocery stores. We're seeing scenes of war on the TV screen, and increasingly we're in a divisive, angry country. There's a growing financial crisis, and just like this carousel at Disney, it's this this picture, the story of progress, but it's just not really going anywhere. It's just taking us in circles. And I would venture to bet that, that our collective anxiety as a society is really, in some sense, rooted in the fact that we know this is the story we've been told, but we can also at the same time see that it's complete crap. We know it because the story's being told everywhere. Buy this and your life will continue an upward trajectory. Our world, if you vote for this person, we're going to keep going up. And, re and we all know it's so fake. In our lectionary passage today from the Bible, it's the last chapter. We've been in Revelation for six weeks now. I hope it's been a blessing to you. It's a scene from heaven. And on the surface, I mean, talking about heaven can seem a little detached from what we've seen and faced this week. And, and really, I just want to focus today on one verse, and really just three words within this verse. This is Revelation 22, verse 20. It says, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Those three words, come, Lord Jesus. If ever there was a week to pray those words, this is it. Come, Lord Jesus. But I, I want to ask today, what are we actually asking when we ask for this? What are we praying when we pray, come, Lord Jesus? In one sense, it can seem like we're acknowledging that there is an absence, and therefore we need God to come and fill the space that, it, that is, is, is empty. But, but we know that not to be true. We say this all the time around here that God is already present and at work in all things. God is already with us. And so we know that's not the case. That's not what we are praying. I mean, it says everywhere in the scriptures, Deuteronomy, that says that God will never leave us or forsake us. Isaiah tells us that the whole earth is filled with God's glory. Matthew 28, at the end of the Great Commission, Jesus says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So why are we asking then Jesus to come? It has everything to do, I think, with what we have watched unfold all week long. As we pointed out over these last few weeks as we walk through Revelation, Revelation is written to and from uh, the perspective of a people without any worldly power whatsoever. They were a people who knew violence into me. They were a people who lived under the oppressive power of Rome. In the latter half of the, the first century, what you see is that the temple is destroyed. Jerusalem is sacked. It's just in shambles, absolutely 
torn apart. Christians are, are, are spread across the empire. They're beginning to fear for their lives. Emperors like, like Nero have come along and are, are absolutely persecuting the, these believers just for their belief in Christ, just for their lives. You can go back and read uh, letters from, from Roman officials about their confusion of why in the world these Christians would live this way in our kind of empire world. These were the circumstances in which, Rome, in which Revelation was written. And so we need to understand it in the context of what is happening here. It's those kind of people that are being written to. It's those kind of people who are receiving these promises. That's where our come Lord Jesus is born. Not from a place of comfort and safety. Not from a place of self-sufficiency. These are a people who are crying out in need, come, Lord Jesus. That's where our prayer is born. And in a sense, it's a prayer of rebellion. It's not simply come Jesus. It's come Lord Jesus. To say that Jesus is Lord is not to say that he's just Lord of our afterlife. It's to say that he's Lord of our whole life, our this life. You see, when you pronounce Jesus as Lord, especially in that time, it's, it's a threat to the kingdom. It's a threat to the empire because you are essentially saying not just that Jesus is my spiritual buddy, that Jesus is king, Jesus is Lord in the here and now. That's what Ascension Sunday is all about. It's about the reigning Jesus sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. And so when these people are saying, Lord Jesus, this is a subversive act. This is not just a spiritual statement. It is a very real world political statement. Matthew Bates, he, he says this, the term uh, Kyrios, Lord, along with soldier, Savior, was a favored term used by the emperor. In fact, if one had ceased to be a Christian and wanted to prove that to the Roman authorities, then one could offer a sacrifice in the presence of a statue of the emperor while saying Caesar is Lord, which was understood in such context as incompatible with the sworn confession, Jesus is Lord. You see, I hope that when you declare Jesus to be Lord, you're saying something far bigger than I'm going to go to heaven one day when I die. You are saying that Jesus is king in the here and the now. He reigns not just in the next life. He reigns in this life. It is subversive then. It is also subversive right now to proclaim that Jesus is Lord. It is what's rebellious back then, and it is very, very still rebellious right now to make that declaration that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. He will not triumph. Death will not triumph because the risen Jesus is what? Lord. But there are days when this victory, this victory we're proclaiming today, this victory we're actually singing, if we're honest, there are days it seems hard to grasp. There are days that victory might feel a little bit hollow, if we're honest. Days when it seems like that death may be winning. Days, days when you feel this, this powerlessness with all of the big issues in front of you. That you know and you long to change, but you just can't do or feel like you can do anything whatsoever. Days when it feels like it's all cross and no resurrection. 
So the question becomes for us today, and this is an important question, how do we reconcile the victory of Jesus with the continued presence of evil in our world? How do we proclaim and sing this with any integrity while knowing what's happening in the world around us? Theologically speaking, we Christians typically fall into one or two extremes on this. On one hand, there's sort of this detached uh, prosperity gospel um, that, that essentially uh, says, it's, you know, some might call this an over-realized eschatology, saying that Jesus won the victory, and all of that victory, all of that victory is present in the here and now. So if you're not experiencing that victory over evil, over failure, over sickness, over depression, then something is wrong with your faith, not with the victory. Here's the problem. When you look at the second half of Hebrews 11, which is called the... the basically the hall of fame of faith here there's a lot of the first half it's a lot of you know heroes and he did this and he did that second half is about a lot of people who got tortured and cut in half and yet paul the writer of hebrews says that these are our examples of faith paul himself was murdered suffering happens victory and suffering coexist very much in our faith. And on the other hand, you have those who would just basically say, this world is going to hell in a handbasket, and it's all evil, everything. We have to protect ourselves from this evil world around us. We have to wait for our reward in the heaven because this victory that we sing of, the victory of Jesus, is about what happens in the next life. So when you look at efforts to build a better world, when you think about praying for breakthrough or healing, you say, why would you even try? I've had people say this to me before. When we talk about things like racism or, or, or issues that we're dealing with in our country right now, I say, what would, we, we're, the world's going to burn up anyway. Why does it matter? I've been told that many, many times before. So you enter into a different kind of apathy or indifference in these places. And on top of that, it's hard to remember in moments like this. But I promise, my friends, we have to remember that there is light breaking through. There is good. There is the goodness of God. Just like the scriptures say, we do and we will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. It's the miracles that we see in Jesus' own ministry that prove this, that show that part of this new kingdom reality breaking in is life, is light, is hope. It's not all sadness and grief. There is great good as well. Tim Keller writes that Christ's miracles were, were not the suspension of the natural order, but the restoration of the natural order. They were a reminder of what was once prior to the fall and a preview of what will eventually be a universal reality once again, a world of peace and justice without death, disease, or conflict. I want you to hear me today. We will see God's goodness in this life. We do see God's goodness in this life. It is not all despair. There is suffering, but suffering is not all we have. And so the question I want to ask today, if it's not either of those two extremes, is how do we live in that tension? How do we operate? How does our faith 
operate in the midst of this tension, when we feel the constant shadow of death around us, and yet we seek to see God's goodness in this light. We seek to experience His breakthrough. How do we rejoice on a day like this, but also lament? How do we understand this tension theologically? How do we root our cries and hurting in the very same ground that we root our victory and rejoice in? That's the picture the Bible gives us is a tension. Some theologians have called this the already and the not yet. The already and the not yet. Meaning the resurrection of Jesus. What we see is the kingdom of God has arrived, but it's not fully arrived. And it won't fully arrive until Jesus returns and brings the restoration of all things like he promised. Until new creation comes in its fullness. His kingdom is already here, yes, but it's not fully here. Look at them here on the screen. You see this. We can see that new creation begins with the resurrection when death was swallowed up in victory. And, and we celebrate that today on Ascension Sunday. We celebrate that he has ascended to heaven to the right hand of God, reigning as king. His kingdom is here. It has arrived, but it's not fully here. But when Jesus returns, which is what our passage speaks of today, when Jesus returns and makes all things new just as He promised, when He puts an end to sin and death, sadness once and for all, we will live in the fullness of this new creation. We will live in the fullness of this for all of eternity. But as you look at this picture, do you see where we are? You see the little dot right there? We are here. We live in the in-between. We live in the already and the not yet. It's why I've sat at bedsides with people who have died of cancer, and I have also celebrated with people who've been healed from cancer. My aunt, my aunt was miraculously healed of cancer. And then years later died of a different cancer. Grief and joy. It's why I have seen relationships crumble in the church, but I've also seen lives and marriages restored. I've watched, you've watched, as the church has perpetuated incredible evil. But I have seen beauty in the body of Christ that I can't explain away. Love in sacrificial, supernatural ways I can't explain, I can't imagine. There is both. I've seen the ravages of addiction, but I've also seen the beauty of stories of recovery. I've seen racism, and I've seen racism repented of. I've cried at the reality of death in this world, death around us. And I've cried at the wonder of life. And I bet for every one of us here, whether you're here, you're watching on live stream, listening later, I bet you have felt that tension. You've walked through life seeing your faith, seeing both death and resurrection, both ruin and restoration, and realized that maybe you didn't have the words to say this, but you realized that you're living in the tension between the already and the not yet. Which is why we pray the three words we pray today. Come, 
Lord Jesus. Not because he's not here, but because his kingdom has not fully arrived. It's why he teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. This is the subversive heartbeat of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus is giving us not just something to pray, but the shape of our mission itself in the already and the not yet to bring about God's future into the present. Our calling is to live that forward, live that into this world, to be the demonstrating community of what our future will look like. God's people do not escape the tension. We make the tension holy. Lee Camp, he wrote about this. He says, the primary task of the Christian community is not to be a so-called religious gathering concerned with souls floating off into the afterlife, nor is it to be some sort of spiritualized yoga class helping individuals find existential peace with themselves. The primary task of the church is to embody and bear witness to the end of history, an all-encompassing reality that has already broken into the world. You might hear this and think, Justin, that sounds a lot like that myth of progress. Is this just the Christian bumper sticker version of the Enlightenment myth of progress? And I understand how people would, would understand that or think that. I think it's precisely because Most of us have never seen Christian faith outside of our Western Enlightenment world. We've only known it within this. We've only known it in this context. And so we we see this, and if the world is painful and broken, we attach our Christianity to the Enlightenment myth of progress, and we think if everything is failing, then my faith must be failing too. And it's not that our faith is failing, it's the framework within we have built our faith that is failing, but we're able now, in the midst of this, to see that our faith was not built on this story. We have a very, very different story. The Bible does not give a picture of us slowly getting better and better and better and better until we finally reach heaven. That's not what we see. It says in Mark, watch out that no one deceives you. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nations will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Then there will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of, oh, I love this. These are the beginning of birth pains. Because a new world is being born right in the middle of the old one. Does it hurt? Yes, but joy is on the way. Paul continues with this metaphor in Romans 8. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up into the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Again, does it hurt? Yes. But joy is on the way. I've been in two delivery rooms. I've come close to fainting both times in these delivery rooms. I'm really showing my my weakness here today with roller coasters. And both times, the, the second time especially, the nurses were a little more concerned with my health at certain points than my wife's because I don't do all the blood and things like that. It just makes me kind of 
sick, but I remember not feeling like I was doing a very good job. I really, I was told, I took the birthing classes, I had three primary roles in these moments. It was to be completely and intently present to my wife. I was to help her breathe, and I was to help her push. And I think that gives us a picture. With these metaphors we see in the scriptures of what our future holds, that gives us a picture of our calling and the tension of the already and the not yet. Our calling as followers of Jesus first is to be present. Refuse to run away from the pain. Refuse to minimize what you see in the world around you. We do not escape suffering. We suffer alongside Compassion literally means to suffer with. So we choose to be present and not run away. Secondly, as followers of Jesus, we breathe. I don't know about you, sometimes I get so anxious I forget to breathe. Anybody do that? I get so caught up in my mind I forget to breathe. This world we inhabit goes so fast that we, it requires us. And the world we, we inhabit to, to slow down slow down and to be intentional about these rhythms that we live with them, to rest. My friends, we need rest. To live in what Eugene Peterson calls the unforced rhythms grace. And finally, as followers of Jesus, we push. We actively, we persistently, we intentionally, we consistently seek to live out this new creation into the present. We, we, we insist on together demonstrating with, with our lives as followers of Jesus that there is a new world that's being born right in the middle of the old one. And as we see, yes, it hurts, we acknowledge this, but we know that there is joy on the way. Our witness in this world depends on our faithfulness in the tension between grief and hope. So we be present, we breathe, and we push. And all of this, this grief, this joy, this longing, the anger, the hope, it's, it's summed up in this prayer that we pray today. These three words, just three. Come, Lord Jesus, let your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we mourn what we have seen this week, come, Lord Jesus. As we suffer under a nation that seems so unwilling to change, come, Lord Jesus. As we witness the ravages of war, death, Racism, oppression, poverty, oppression, loneliness, and all the pain that goes seen and unseen, come, Lord Jesus. This is our cry because we look forward to the day that you will come and make all things new. I pray, God, you give this, this church family a holy discontent the way the world is right now, but at the very same time that you would give us 
a rootedness in prayer, a rootedness in crying out that you would bring the future here into the present. We would see your kingdom made manifest here on earth as it is in heaven. But until then, Lord, help us to be present to the pain of others. Help us to breathe and live in the rhythms of grace. And God, may we lock arms. May we disrupt the spirit of death in this world. May we push for life. May we push for the joy that is on its way. Come, Lord Jesus. We're going to celebrate communion today. As Jesus was doing this meal last supper, he says, this, we won't do this again until we feast together in the end. There was already in this meal a tension between the now and the not yet. This is a remembrance, an appetizer, a look forward to what we will one day experience together the fullness of life, sitting around the table with Jesus. This bread represents Jesus' body broken for us. The juice represents the cup. His blood shed for our sins. We encourage you today, you don't have to, but we encourage you if you want to take this. And...